Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 68 for December 8th, 2011. So this is our, what, fifth Star Trek Next Generation episode? Something like that? I think we're seven. seven. At least my notes say seven. Okay, I'll take your word for it. It, it, it was that whole Thank IDW you. one that we did a couple of episodes ago that, that's throwing me all off. Oh, well, right, 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 exactly. Okay, so, yeah, so we're doing uh, episode, uh, or actually issues number 19, 20, and 21 that came out uh, May through uh, July of 1991. Yep. And uh, I guess we don't really have any housekeeping things, so you want to just jump straight into the uh, the first one there, Ken? I think uh, that would be my pleasure, Donovan. All right. So the first issue for today is issue number 19, and it's titled The Lesson. Published date is May 1991. Writer is Michael Jan Friedman. Penciler is Peter Krauss and Pablo Marcus. Letterers, or letterer, is Bob Pinaha. Colorist is Juliana Ferreter. Editor is Robert Greenberger. The cover shows Troy and Dr. Crusher in a wooded area on a planet with a red sky and two moons. They appear to be on a hill with a beautiful view of other hills in the distance. Butterflies abound, a peaceful scene. The story opens in a room on the Enterprise where Dr. Crusher and Counselor Troy are having a casual conversation. Beverly asks Deanna whether she has thought of the end, meaning death. Troy tells her yes. Everyone thinks about it one, at one time or another. Troy notes that her telepathic abilities allowed her to notice that something has been bothering Beverly the past several days. Beverly admits that it's her birthday, and it's brought home the fact that she is getting older. Troy chides her for letting her birthday to get, get to her that much. But since it's affecting her, Troy says she will give Beverly a birthday gift. Beverly objects strongly at first, but Troy assures her this gift is different than what she's expecting. In Picard's office, Riker is explaining how he got roped into teaching a history class for a 12-level students on the ship. Mr. Gans got wind of Riker's uh, academy treatise on how the American Revolutionary War could have been avoided and asked if Riker could give the kids a break from his voice and teach the class covering the American Revolution. Picard comments that he has heard Gans lecture before and he was right to ask for some help. On the holodeck, Troy is taking the obstinate Dr. Crusher on an adventure for her special birthday gift. Beverly is not happy about it because Troy is not telling her exactly where they are headed. But once in the hollow suite, she sees it will be 
in a simulated natural setting. The inside title page is made up of a page-sized panel showing an alien world that is wooded and quite beautiful. Deanna and Beverly are quite small in the middle of the page, and several yards away from the giant or several yards away is a giant alien tortoise creature. The title, The Lesson, is in red text towards the top left of the page. After standing near the entrance to the wooded simulation, admiring the view, Beverly finally says, Thanks for the gift, but I need to get back to work. Deanna says that is nonsense, because there is plenty of more to see, and she strikes out at a brisk pace into the woods. Elsewhere in the Enterprise, a student named Ari is attempting to pump Wesley for inside info as to whether Commander Riker is planning to do a pop quiz today for history class. Wesley says he doesn't know, but Ari continues to push Wesley. Riker overhears the conversation and sets Ari straight on the fact that Wesley has no inside information, whether he is on the bridge all the time or not. Back in the holodeck, Beverly has been following Troy uphill for quite a while now. She finds out the program is an amalgamation of Beta Z and other worlds Troy has visited. Meanwhile, in 10 Forward, Jordy calls Data over to his and O'Brien's table. They are discussing who they would want to be if they could be anyone in the, va- in the galaxy. Miles says he wants to be his Uncle Sean due to the lovely lasses in his hometown on Alpha Norena 7. Jordy says he would want to be this guy in the Gamma Meridian system who owns a moon, an entire moon, that is covered with salvaged ships he has gathered from around the quadrant. All that hardware to play with, and no time pressures to distract him from the fun. That is what Jordy calls heaven. Next, it's Data's turn. To which he says, at the risk of sounding unimaginative, he says the only place for him is there aboard the Enterprise. In the classroom, Riker is conducting history class. Riker tells a story of the traitor Benedict Arnold, who paints a pretty negative portrait of the the man that switched allegiances during the American Revolutionary War. Wesley brings up a publication by Montmorency, that stated that Benedict Arnold was very likely an American patriot who was actually a double agent for the American colonists. Riker thanks Wesley for bringing up the theory and asks him to stay after class to discuss the Montmorency theories more. On the holodeck, Deanna is talking Beverly into jumping across a collapsed natural bridge which is over a raging river. Beverly thinks she is nuts for asking to do such a thing, but Deanna reminds her of the safety protocols, and, and with that, she successfully jumps across herself. Crusher buckles under the pressure Deanna's putting on her, and breaks into a run, and jumps! Meanwhile, Worf is in his quarters, watching a video message from young Jeremy Astor. He speaks of his summer vacation dilemma. Jeremy speaks of his summer vacation dilemma to Worf. He has been offered to visit San Francisco and even Starfleet Academy, but if he leaves, he is afraid his potential girlfriend will go for a competitor rather than him if he's away for too long. 
he asks for Worf to reply with his advice. Worf does so and tells him to stay and fight. On the holodeck, Beverly is saying she will climb no further unless she knows where the heck they are going. Troy encourages her just a little further. And with that, a little further on, they finally reach their objective, the top of a mountain with a thrilling view of two moons reflecting on a large body of water below. The view is absolutely spectacular. Beverly does not believe they climbed all that way. Troy says, not bad for a woman of her advanced years. Beverly says, so that is what this gift thing was all about, an an object lesson? Beverly says it worked, because despite the bruises, she felt like a teenager again. Age really is a state of mind. She compliments Troy on her counseling skills. At Riker's office, Wesley enters expecting to be bawled out for making Riker look so bad in front of the class. Instead, Riker thanks Wesley for pointing out his outdated take on Benedict Arnold. He could have just let Riker go on spouting outdated information, but Wesley did not cut him that slack and made sure the right information was discussed in class. Riker shakes Wesley's hand. As Riker and Wesley head out of the room and into the hall, they meet Troy and Beverly, who are back from their holodeck adventure and looking quite a mess. Wesley and Riker show concern that they are all right. Beverly says she may not look so great, but she feels wonderful. The end. So did you notice that Troy's and Crusher's uniforms are all cut up and tattered? when they leave the holodeck, but when they were standing on top of the overlook, they were still intact? Yeah, they look... Yes. Overall, they look worse for wear when when Riker and uh, and, uh, Wesley see them. Right. So, anyways. Yeah. You think they have a little bit more consistency on that. But obviously they're making them look so bad then because they want to justify why Wesley and Will are so concerned about them, I well, guess. Well, and we also don't know how their trek back down the mountain could have gone. True. True. They could have uh, took a tumble. You never know. Yeah, we don't know. Or they could have fought like a saber-toothed tiger or maybe that tortoise at the beginning turned out to be evil. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, or uh, maybe some dangerous, maybe a Magatu got slipped into the program or something, I don't know. In this one, it it just lists uh, Peter Krause and Pablo Marcos as the artists. In the next two issues, it it breaks them out and says that Peter is the um, penciler and Pablo is the inker. I got a feeling like that's that's probably the way it was, was in this book as well, even though they don't actually say it. Right. Yeah, because the uh, the drawing style does not look like uh, Pablo's typical work. No. And, you know, with the exception of O'Brien, who still has an incredibly large forehead, uh, I think that most of the characters look pretty good. Yeah, they, they look good, except uh, my comment is I don't think that the depiction of Dr. Crusher is um, 
I think in many many panels, it does not look like Gates McFadden. Well, it, she has very straight bangs, which I don't remember Gates McFadden having on the show. Right. Maybe she did. I don't know. And the... Well, I think it depends. In some some cases, her facial features are pretty good. In others, I don't think they're very good. I don't think the facial features are really as spot on as they. I think they should be. But yeah, I could see it. And I think the hair color is a little. Uh, I don't know, clownish. It's. I mean, it's really orange. Not not really but, red. But it's not always but, orange. Eh. I mean, there's that one shot where she's a blonde. <laughs> They're on page 16, the, the uh, first panel on page 16. On page 16? Yeah. Let me let me double-check that. I'm sure you're right. I just don't yeah, remember kinda it. Threw... I remember it mostly being just orange. Yeah, it is orange through the most of it, except for that one panel for whatever oh, reason. Oh, you're she right. As blonde as blonde can be. You aren't kidding. Boy, is she blonde. <laughs> I didn't I mean, even notice that. Her hair color matches the yellow jumpsuit that uh, Troy's wearing. Oh, uh, Yes. That's true because um, their their jumpsuits are not exactly the same design, and the colors aren't exactly the same. And they do have like uh, I don't know. Well, I guess they're outdoorsy kind of mountain climbing or something. Yeah, I, w- I, I kept. But they're not their normal yeah, uniforms. Yeah, I kept swaying between I hated them and I really liked them. <laughs> right. Because I mean, it kind of seemed weird. Because it's like a. Like, Crusher's is like a turtleneck type thing, where Troy's is a little lower cut, like everything she wears. Yeah, more of a V-neck. Right. Yeah, they're definitely different outfits, but the general, I mean, the the, 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 the pants are quite tight, and they end about halfway down the uh, the lower leg. Right. So they're kind of out of the way for uh, rough and tumble action. Yeah, and, and, and provides... Ample skin there at the end of their leg for snakes. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. They're completely unprotected in the lower half of their leg until you get to the boot. But, uh, anyways. Yes. So, overall, I think this was, um, this was an interesting comic in some ways, but really, it's all character study. And, you know, Nobody's, you know, nobody's saving Earth. Uh, there aren't big space battles or anything. It's just, uh, you know, a bunch of folks all together on this flying tin can, and they're just uh, relating to each other. Right. Yep. And, you know, so it, you know, these are the these are like the uh, TV episode is like, okay, I got to get through one of these before I can be truly engaged with an adventurous one. Right. Yeah. You know. And you know what? Some of those, some of those shows they did on the, uh, on the, some of those episodes where they obviously uh, didn't want to spend any money on, and uh, it was all just, you know, within the Enterprise and within the normal Enterprise sets. Uh, some of those were right. either really, really good or just kind of, eh. But it seemed like. Yeah, they're like. Fair. Yeah, but some of them, like you know, like the one where Data. Creates law. I mean, that was an episode that they didn't spend any money on, and it's like one of the best right. episodes, I think. Um, right. Because they didn't. And and there was one. 
And there was one Data's Day. Right. Yep. That I thought was really that's good the one too. Where, and I, as I recall, that was all yeah, on the show. Yeah, that's ship. the one where O'Brien gets married. Oh yeah, I think yeah. you're right. I think you're right. So yeah, so uh, yeah, yeah, and they do that for budgetary reasons. So they, you know, they they're allowed a certain amount of money, and they want to they do an, a, a ship episode so that they can then use the special effects money from that episode in in a, a later episode and make it bigger. Oh, that's cool. And, and I thought they usually did ones like this just because um, it's like. Well, you can't have a big action-packed episode every week, or you kind of get numb to it. It's like, you know. Well, that might be the case, but everything that I've ever read said they do it for budgetary reasons, so that they can use the yeah, money that, that was allotted for that sense, episode into sense. a bigger one later down the road. Sure. And, of course, in a comic book, you don't really have any of those same kind of budgetary concerns. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was going to get at. So, um, <laughs> what so was that's it? what I was going to get at that they they didn't really have that excuse for oh. this one. Right. But I mean, it, it didn't seem like a bad issue. The the only two pages that I thought was really filler was the O'Brien data um Jordy what would you do if you could be anybody uh story. Yeah. I mean, those, I agree with that. That that was that yeah, was those nothing. two pages served nothing to the story and didn't really add anything to anybody's character. Yeah, and and quite frankly, I thought the wharf thing was very brief, and very throwaway. And and who's that kid? It's Jeremy Astor. I don't know who that is. He was in that one episode of The Next Generation. Uh, his mom dies. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's alone there on the ship. His mom was a security officer, and he, uh, oh. what, uh, Worf kind of takes him under his wing, and the little boy decides that I'm going to be a Klingon, and uh, starts doing ah. like, the Klingon stuff. Um, uh, the little boy was played by the kid from RoboCop 2. I don't know if you remember that movie, and I can't remember what the... I remember the movie. I don't remember yeah, the kid, though. He was... He was uh, the main bad guy, Kane, it was his, like, prodigy-type kid. Uh, oh. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, at the end of that mo- and end of that episode, um, that little boy goes off with Worf's parents back to Earth. And I, I don't know if oh, we ever hear from him okay. again. I was going to look it up, but I didn't have a chance to. Right. But I'm pretty sure we never yeah, hear I don't from remember him. that episode. He, he's, he's a one-episode right. kid. Well, since he was introduced in here and not explained in any way, shape, or form. I figured he had to have been on the show at some point. I just didn't remember the episode. Yeah, fortunately for... And I'm sure... I'm yeah, sure I've fortunately it, for me, it had his name there um, underneath... It, in the little panel where he's watching the view screen, it says Jeremy Astor, star date 442701. Right. Yeah. The kid doesn't really look like the kid that played him in, in the show. This kid looks a little chubbier. Right. Right. But anyways. And quite frankly, the advice, you know, fight. You know, okay, that that's very Klingon. But it's like, come on. He's a kid. It's like, he's probably going to go through women. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably not his future wife. It's a childhood infatuation. Right. It's like, 
that compared with going to San Francisco and seeing Starfleet? I mean, it's like, come on. I mean, I'm, if I was that age, I mean, I, you know, I, I'd be going to Starfleet. Huh? Right, and it's not, it's not, that, even, his, yeah, I'm it's not even his girlfriend. It's just a girl that he likes and exactly. he thinks might like him back. Yeah, and there's already another guy in the picture. So it's like, uh, I don't know. I don't think the advice is necessarily uh, hands down the good advice that Worf gives him, but it's fine. It's it's good. It's in line with what you think Worf would say, but... Right. I'd rather go to Starfleet. <laughs> my personal preference. But I guess you can go to Starfleet other, you know, in the future at some point. But Well, you know, in the future... I mean, I guess he was invited to Starfleet, so it's not like... I mean, he's actually getting a tour of some sort. Right, so. right. Yeah, he's he's going with it, what, his aunt or something, or... Oh. I mean, the trip's really to San Francisco. Right. And one of the things they're going to do is, like, like tour Starfleet or something. Okay, does it say that he's going with his aunt? Because maybe I'm misremembering the whole uh, Worf's parents thing. Yeah, he says Aunt Megan, so... I'm a, yeah, I might be strike that whole he goes off to live with his parents thing. That's that might just be me misremembering. Huh? That's fine. Either way, <laughs> I might end up looking it up after the episode. Anyway. Sounds good. Anyway, so uh, so that's cool. So I was thinking that was a little bit throwaway. I mean, it, they really went out of their way to try to show something of every major character. In this episode, and it is a pretty big cast, right. so you know, I guess you are you do have to stretch yourself a little bit to uh, give everybody a little something, give everybody a little bone. Right. Yeah, I, I like th- I like that though, just because I like the tie-in with Jeremy Astor um, from that episode. So I like that right. scene. I just didn't like the O'Brien, uh, Data, and Geordi scene, which I thought was was throwaway. Yeah, and especially uh, Data's reply was a little trite. <laughs> oh, I, I'd rather be here in myself. <laughs> Thanks, the, Data. The only th- You've learned the proper yeah. lesson. <laughs> the only thing I liked about that scene was uh, that it had Worf and... I mean, I'm sorry. That it had O'Brien and Geordi, who, you know, Geordi's the current engineer, and you know that O'Brien will be the future engineer for Deep Space Nine, kind of talking about... Oh, right. You know, this... Ted the Tinkerer or whatever his name was. Right. So I just thought that was kind of that was kind of cool. Since uh, they kind of turn O'Brien into a Geordie type character here pretty soon. Right. And uh, and he you know him always being the transporter chief in Star Trek. At least I think that's all he ever was. Uh, maybe he grew into something more before he left for Deep Space Nine, but he was always just the transporter chief, and it's like, it seems like a big escalation of responsibilities being the engineer of, the sh- of, of a space station, but, um, well, uh, and, and another thing that's kind of interesting uh, in, you know, the in Deep Space Nine, when they explain how he, I mean, he was just a normal soldier. Yeah, he was a non-commissioned officer. And then he turned out under pressure to be able to get a transporter working or something, and he saved everybody. And so then he knew he had a a thing, a talent for uh, fixing things. Yep. Anyway, I think they actually talk about that in in the next generation. But when that 
that episode oh, did they? where they okay. introduced the Cardassians and O'Brien talks about his past. I'm pretty sure that was from that that episode. Oh, okay. okay. But remember, well, Jordy was just a whatever. navigator, and then suddenly one season he was well, the I know. chief engineer. <laughs> I know, and I always thought because there, were, I don't recall there ever being an explanation for that. It's like one season he's he's the guy that steers the ship, and then the you know the next season he's the guy that fixes the ship. It seems like a pretty big difference in skill set, but well, he's Jordy. He can do anything. He can't. You know, he has those those. Except, except, get a date. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Anything else? Um, I I just think that I would not have taken Wesley's correction in public as well as Riker did. I mean, in the in the end, I I, I would hope I would I would uh, <laughs> let my emotions not get away with me, but uh, you know, I'd, I'd be kind of. I'd be kind of, I'd be kind of cheesed off for a while. And I think he was, if, he was uh, at first, and then he realized that he was doing exactly what Riker said well, he was going to do, not play favorites. Right, 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 right. But I, I just, yeah, and I just think Riker. I mean, good for Riker. I mean, everybody's you know pretty much, you know, the best kind of people that probably don't exist in reality much. But uh, yeah, it was very good of Riker. I'm not so sure I would have taken it so well. And then the big handshake at the end <laughs> was a bit much. But hey, that's good. You think you think three hundred years in the future they're gonna find a lot more unknown data about Benedict Arnold? Uh, I don't know. Because obviously, I mean, actually, that's an interesting point because I assume that is totally completely made up in this comic book. Yeah, I think so too. But then. But then, you know, it's like, huh. You know, if that is completely made up for the comic book, that's pretty That's pretty clever of Friedman to uh, do that. Because it kind of sounds like something that could be plausible. Yeah, I guess so. Do you guess so? I just think okay. that if, if, <laughs> if it does well, end okay. up being true, I mean, I think the chances of them figuring it out like now would be greater than them figuring it oh, out 300 right. years from now. Right. Right. Unless they uncovered some kind of letters that were never known before or something. How would they how would they have any evidence to back up such a Oh such I a know point? how they could right. I know right. how they could do it. Time travel. Duh. How? Time travel. <laughs> you forget that this is a time That is a, a way. place where you can go back in time if you really need to save some whales or something, so pop back in time. If you really need to, you can find do that. Out about history and come back. We there had it all wrong. Should we move Let's on to 20? It. So this one is entitled Flight of the Albert Einstein, which came out in June of 1991. So all the staff is the same. Yep, everything's the same, except like I said earlier, uh, they just split out uh, Peter Krause as the penciler and Pablo Marcos as the inker. So the cover shows... It's a very busy picture, so I'm going to do my best to describe it. Um, it's some interesting headshots of all the main crew, including Guinan, uh, with the Enterprise D at the bottom. And the way they have the pictures is that they're all kind of interspliced with each other. Um, 
and there's some of these vertical lines running up and down uh, and some the pictures are kind of like fading into these lines and fading out and it, and it kind of looks like maybe the transporter effect but it's a, it's a pretty interesting picture and uh, I forgot who the artist is Julian Moore I think it is or Jay Moore anyway so the story starts off with a um, Federation colony on Beta Hydros 4 a mother is comforting her daughter in, in a sick bay type area the young girl is worried that she's she's about to die and her mom assures her that there's a huge starship on its way with the needed medical supplies and that nobody is going to die so warping through space we are treated to a very interesting depiction of the starship enterprise's underbelly and i'm sure we'll talk about it later it's it's uh, it's peculiar so we get captain picard's uh, captain's log and it informs us that the enterprise is en route to the twin colonies of alpha and beta hydros uh, they are bringing medical supplies and uh, doctor medical personnel to assist with an outbreak of Zelazon fever and the need is so great that the Enterprise is going to continue to travel to Alpha while Riker takes a shuttle to the Beta colony so a gentleman by the name of Mr. Billicks is at Worf's normal station and he informs the captain that they are about to arrive Picard orders uh, Data to slow to impulse uh, Captain Picard checks in on Riker in the shuttle bay. Riker says they are all packed and ready to go. Picard orders them to proceed. Uh, we are then introduced to the shuttle crew, which consists of Wesley, Worf, Dr. Salar, a um, woman by the name of Nurse Faraday, a gentleman named Dr. Marino, uh, another male doctor that I never caught his name, and a beautiful young nurse who I also never caught her name. Uh, they quickly depart the Enterprise and are heading towards Beta Hydros 4. A short time later, one of the medical uh, staff, the uh, gentleman that I didn't catch his name, uh, starts to complain about young Wesley being the pilot. Uh, and then the young woman, the nurse I'm assuming, uh, who also I didn't catch her name, uh, is the one that's quickly uh, there to defend Wesley. And then, you know, you kind of get the thought that maybe she's she's uh, sweet on the young ensign. Uh, Worf also uh, uh, steps in and he basically stares down the doctor and states that Wesley is the best pilot around. Meanwhile the Enterprise has arrived at Alpha Hydros uh, colony and they beam Crusher down and her medical staff. She is relieved to see that the fever is not as bad as it was reported and comments that if the same thing is going on at the Beta Colony, then the shuttle crew should have no problem taking care of the outbreak there. On the shuttle that's still en route, Worf and some of the doctors are playing poker while Wesley and Riker are at the controls. Worf complains that the doctors are overthinking the game when the shuttle is suddenly rocked by turbulence. A massive wormhole type phenomenon is opened up in front of the shuttle Wesley is not able to break free in time and the shuttle is sucked in. Uh, people, cards, and supplies are flung all around the shuttle as Wesley is able to break free of the anomaly. Once they enter normal space, they find that Riker has taken a blow to the head and is an un unconscious. Back on the Enterprise, Mr. Billix informs Picard uh, 
that they have lost the shuttle's signal. They attempt to contact the Einstein, but to no avail. Picard orders the course to be laid in for Beta Hydros so that they can search for the missing shuttle. Back in the shuttle, Dr. Salar pronounces that Riker's injuries are quite severe. The young nurse, who, again, I don't know her name, so the young nurse is very worried, and she states that Riker is the only reason why she signed up for duty aboard the Enterprise. So our hopes that uh, she had the hots for Wesley seemed to be unfounded. That or she just really likes anybody. Wesley informs them that they are in unknown space, and that their star drive has been damaged. Uh, he also states that they have no tools or parts to perform any type of repairs, and he informs them that since they do not know where they are, and they only have impulse drive, that they may be old and gray by the time they ever return home. Some of the, some of the medical staff start to fret about their predicament. Worf shuts them up and says that he is in command, since Riker is now incapacitated. On the Enterprise, Picard is discussing the loss of the shuttle with Beverly Crusher. He tells her that there is still hope since they did not find any wreckage. She puts on a brave face in front of Picard, but as she's leaving, you can see the anguish on her face. Once alone, Picard laments about how he does not want to give Crusher news of her son's death, just like he had to give her news of her husband's death all those years ago. On the bridge, Geordi and Troy have a discussion about the events. Troy states that there is no um, Troy states that there is no one more resourceful than Riker, and that if there's any way to get out of it, Riker will find a way to do so. Back on the shuttle, Worf again reminds the doctors that he is the ranking officer, and he orders Wesley to plot a course to a star and and start flying towards it, not knowing if that's the right one to go to or not. To be continued. Da da da! A sticky wicket they're in, and quite a few of them. Yeah, it, it's not really advertised on this episode or this uh, issue, but this is, I think, a five-part mini, uh, five-part story arc. So. Oh, five parts. Yep, I'm pretty sure. Oof. Yeah. Well, I knew it was at least three because we've. We'll read the next one, the second one, in a few a few minutes, uh, and that's a cliffhanger too. So it's obviously at least three, but it goes up to five. Yeah, now. I'm pretty okay. sure uh, all three issues that we do um, in episode sixty nine will all be this story arc. Okay, okay. Well, buckle up, buddy. We got a little trip to go on. <laughs> so last okay. well, last issue. Um, the cover was very pertinent to what was going on in that story. Uh, the cover for this one looks cool and all, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the story. And the fact that not the fact that Guinan's on there and yet she's not in one single panel of the whole story, uh, I think proves that more than anything. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like how Wesley was pa- popping up on a whole bunch of covers and stories that he was almost not in right. at all. Uh, I. I think to some degree they just say who's popular who who might be able to draw some people into uh, buying the issue um, I think sometimes that happens right. yeah I mean I'm not quite sure why Whoopi Goldberg would be a big draw but <laughs> I don't know maybe I mean it's a cool picture I, I, I really like this uh, this this artwork just it's just very yeah. generic as far as yeah. the storyline goes 
Exactly. I mean, this looks like the kind of cover that somebody was commissioned to do just to say, you know what? We need to have a cover. We know we're going to need covers. <laughs> let's let's just commission some nice ones to happen, and we can throw them on when we need to. Well, all these are done by the same same person, uh, this Jay Moore person. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. Whatever the, their whim was yeah. to crank out uh, the cover the week, whoever the month. Right. I don't know. Anyways. Right, so the previous issue was was incredibly spot on with the main storyline showing you know, uh, Doctor Crusher and and Troy, and that's it. I mean, there were other, there were kind of there are tons of other things going on. So uh, actually, I think that was really good because uh, you know they focused. Of course, it is two two attractive ladies on the cover, and <laughs> probably most of the uh, buying comic book public are male, although not exclusively. Uh, but still, okay. So maybe there was a couple of reasons. I thought it was pretty good how they how they did that, though. I mean, they really did stick. That cover was really in alignment with the uh, with the story more so than well, a lot yeah. of them. Next issue, I think, is 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 really good too. But we'll get there here in a minute. Right. So speaking, yeah, I especially like how how Picard looks in that in that in that next cover of issue twenty one. So speaking of art that we do like, what'd you think of the uh, Enterprise? How it was depicted there on page three? Well, when I first saw the depiction, I looked at it and I said, "I don't like that. That's it. Just doesn't look right." And then I just went ahead and read the book. Um, then later, when looking at it again, I at least know partially what I don't like about it. Um, well, it's... which is the saucer section is way too small. Well, not only that, but then it's the uh, the the neck area that connects it to the engineering section is just it's jutting out too far forward. So it's almost long and spindly, kind of like the uh, Enterprise A. You see what I'm ta- saying, talking about? Yeah, yeah, it is too long, but the shape is right. I mean. It's kind of like I mean, if you take a, if you if you cut it in, in in like in the middle section, it's kind of like a triangle shape. So it's sharper in the front and then flares out to a wider back, almost like a yeah, triangle. So that's right. right. But you're right; it is too long. too long. It's too long. But but also the saucer section is disproportionately large on the Enterprise D uh, compared to the nacelles, compared to the engineering section, and this thing. Um, that the largeness of the saucer section is is, is not there. Yeah, I agree. No, it, it's a very odd depiction, and right, and it, it's just sad that that's the that's the picture that really kicks off the story. I mean, you get the woman talking to her daughter, <laughs> you know, that's kind of touching, and then right. blam, here's the Enterprise, and it's weird. <laughs> right. So, anyways, and of course, um, and of course, the name of this uh, issue is "The Flight of the Albert Einstein," which is making me think of uh, the TV episode "The Galileo 7. I mean, it's not not the flight of, but still, the name of the story is the name of the oh, shuttle. Yeah. Good point. That people are um, are stuck in. 
Very good point. And that's a that's a that's a big butt shuttle, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that is a very roomy it's shuttle. It's like the uh, a Winnebago shuttle or something. <laughs> it's even got a table. And you say, it, what was it like? Like two or three rows uh, of seating, pretty wide seating right. too. And uh, and then they get they, they got a table there, like like a long table that they're playing. Yeah, it's almost on. like a clown car. It's like how many people can we shove into the shuttle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many people do they have in this thing? Like ten or eleven? Well, I, mean, I don't know. I I don't know if. I, I didn't count, but... Well, I named off everybody that's actually in there. So it was Picard, Wesley, Worf, Dr. Salar, Nurse Faraday, Dr. Marino, and then those two people that had a lot of speaking parts but weren't named. So eight people. Okay. And not Picard, it was... Uh, Riker. What, Riker. Oh, did I say Picard? Sorry. You did. That's... Yeah, I knew what you meant. Yeah, so it's a lot of people inside of a shuttle. Especially, you know, in general, next-gen, they... A lot of their shuttles were really dinky in a lot of episodes. Right, it wasn't until um, later when Deep Space Nine started that they used the runabout shuttle design sometimes. Right. Right. Yeah, but this thing's even bigger than... This thing's even bigger than a runabout. this thing is like a a a stretch limo type... uh, Shuttle. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's a little bit more like some of those shuttles, uh, more like like the people transport shuttles they used in the uh, 2009 movie. I guess so. Yeah. If you had a a row going down the length of it, I guess you could could see that. Uh. Yeah. 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 Well. Yeah. Yeah. That biggest ship did have uh, the seating a little differently, right? Right. So what do you think? What do you think anyway, this? It's the biggest shuttle yeah, I've ever I seen. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Star Trek. Yeah, and it seems. I mean, let's just assume that it does have warp drive, since they keep saying that it has a star drive. Um, yeah, and what is that about? Yeah, and how fast can it really go? I mean, how much time are they really saving by uh, stopping, sending this one shuttle one direction while the Enterprise goes into another direction? I mean, the Enterprise can travel at, what, warp 9.9 or whatever, something ridiculously um, large or or fast. Right. So, I mean, how much time are they yeah. really saving? Well, I can only assume, I mean, since they've, they've established that they are, well, maybe this series didn't, but they've established that even probes that come out of the Enterprise-D can travel at warp speed, high warp speed. It's like... This star drive has to be warp drive. Right. Yeah. And if you got to be at two places at the exact same time, and if you know you're going to have to be in the one place for, I don't know, hours, a day or two, whatever, you know, to get these people treated, well, maybe you want to send the shuttle. I yeah, I, I understand that. That's a it's a day delay. Well, but I don't know how, how far apart are these two places. I, mean, I kind of get the feeling that they're in the same star system, right? Since one's called Alpha Hydros and one's called Beta Hydros. Yep, I would agree. I would agree. So, anyways, I just thought that was weird that that they had a need to split up to begin with. Yeah, but you know, even if the Enterprise can get to the one place and then instantaneously get to the next place once they start, they're still going to be delayed for whatever time period they need to treat the first group of people. Right, but even after they get to 
the first place, um, I mean, they're still tracking the shuttle, and they know they know that it's not there yet. Um, so it's not like they were going to get there at the same time, anyways. Well, I don't. I don't know that that's. Well, I don't know that that's the fact. When they get sucked into the warp hole, the wormhole, or whatever it is, right? The uh, that Mister Billick's guy informs Picard that they lost contact with the shuttle, and by that time, you know, Crusher's already cured the fever, and Riker and them were still playing poker in the back of the of the shuttle. Yeah. Well. So, I mean, it just didn't seem like the, the times was right. I mean, they already got to the got to the first place, beamed down everybody. They could have easily warped over to the second place and beamed over stuff too. Oh. But I don't know. Yeah, and and the whole thing doesn't make a lot. I I think they I think they did things certain ways like they kept people on the shuttle longer than they should have because if you really want to make this work, first off, you got to have a shuttle that can go at warp speed. Uh and, but but you're in a solar system. You don't typically use warp drive in a solar system, but whatever. Um and you come in at some point, you come out of warp somewhere uh, into the into the, the solar system, star system, whatever, uh, someplace close to equidistant. And then you both go, split off and go uh, towards both planets. That's what would make more sense. Um, right, and I think that's what they tried to do. The timing of, I agree with what you're saying, the timing of what's happening seems whacked. Right. Yeah, it seemed like they had a yeah, lot more downtime on the shuttle than they did on the Enterprise. That, yeah, they should have. Right. But I mean, but the inter- but the show Star Trek is guilty of that a lot of times too, because there's one episode where the Enterprise has to slow down and beam down somebody and then take off at the same time, and and I think it was Troy makes a comment that. It felt like she was being beamed into the rock at first, and then she materialized, you know, a couple of feet away. And Jordy was like, "Yeah, because you you were because this because the Enterprise had to take off so fast." And I remember as a kid thinking, "It couldn't wait thirty seconds to finish the transport before it had to take off again." <laughs> yep, yep. <coughs> they couldn't wait. <laughs> Damn their hides. But anyways. Alright, so enough yeah. Nick. So it, it, in the Yeah, so in the end this one is kind of a setup really for the next set of uh issues. Yeah, it's 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 almost like the premise of Voyager. So you got a little ship stuck out oh, of nowhere. Right, right. And it may or may not ever uh-huh. make it home. Right. And you've incapacitated your, your Good point. Your I hadn't really I hadn't really uh, made that connection. So, anyways, um, yeah, I, I thought they had multiple problems getting people's uh, face colors right in this one. You know, we had uh, we had hair color problems in the previous issue. This one, we have a little bit of uh, face color problems. Um, I didn't notice, I, 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 except for Data. Well, that too. So. Uh, yes, yeah, so on page 7, Dr. Marino, yeah, he looks like Data. who's on right. the shuttle, 
all of a sudden his 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 uh, his face color was stark white like Data. Right. And in fact, as I was reading the the comic, um, it was like, okay, you're on the shuttle, and there's a guy that looks like Data, and it's like he's just there, he's not saying anything. I don't think he was saying anything. So I'm reading, 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 and then I then we're back in the Enterprise, and the Enterprise, hey, Data's there. But he's in both places. And then I went back and I saw, oh, that's not Data, but it's Data's skin color. Oh. And then, and then right once they once they got to the plant, the one of the two planets that were in trouble, Data's on the planet helping to move heavy containers, whatever, and he and he turns, uh, you know, Caucasian. Right. Skin color. Was there other ones other than that? I think those are the two: Doctor Marino and then Data. My big thing. Were there uh, others? No, not not that. But I thought that the artwork for Doctor Solar was was way off. I mean, she always had this. Or at least the way they're depicting her here, she has like a like no, or like her eyes are closed all the time and. Like a really, I don't know, just very odd artwork for yeah. her. Well, uh, in some panels, do okay. So uh, I agree with you. I don't think they did very good artwork on, on her in general. Um, does Ensign Nagata remind you of anybody? Is she the in is some she panels? The girl? Yeah, she's the girl that seems to be hot on Wesley at times, okay. and then seems to be hot on Riker. I didn't at times. catch her name. What was her name again? Uh, Ensign Nagata. I think she looks like Denise Richards. Oh, ooh, mm, yeah, I, I kind of see that. I see somebody else, oh. but only in some panels, not all of them. I was looking at the panel on page seven. Which one were you looking at? Um, page sixteen, and then some. I would have to look through it again to find some of the other ones, but I think that are there. Are, Panels where she looks like Hillary Swank. Uh, okay. Yeah, I guess I could see that. I, I still just see Denise Richards when I look at it, though. <laughs> yeah, Denise Richards of uh, Starship Troopers fame. Exactly. And uh, that one James Bond. Uh, who was really cute. Denise Richards is a really cute lady. Um <laughs> Yeah, I can I can see I can see her a little bit. It's mainly in that first panel, and I think in the next issue she right. looks a lot like Denise Richards too. But those two panels you were talking about on page sixteen uh, don't look like Denise Richards all that much. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, just in I'm regards to that nurse, uh, it just seems odd that she has the hots for Wesley at first, and then suddenly states that the only reason why she even joined the Enterprise was because she wanted to be closer to Riker. It just seems, you know, she only has like two or three speaking lines, and in each one she's kind of implying that she has the hots for another crew member. Seemed a little weird. Exactly. Yes. But that was my last. So she's just the kind of person, she's just the kind of person that's outgoing and relates to other people. Is that what it is? Usually males. Gotcha. All right, that was my last comment. Okay. Excellent. Number 21? To find out what happens to the good ship Einstein? Let's find out. Or will we? Five-parter. Okay, uh, episode, or issue number 21, 
Morning Star, entitled Morning Star, July 1991. Uh, it's all the same people. I'm not going to repeat it again. Darn it, no matter how often you ask. Okay, the cover shows Guinan, Beverly, and Troy standing behind a seated Captain Picard in what appears to be a conference room on the Enterprise. They all look sad and concerned as they look at three yellow and black holographic statues of Worf, Wesley, and Riker. The inside title page shows Picard seated in his office and slumping over, looking depressed. He is recording his personal log and stating how days of searching for the Einstein and all her crew has resulted in nothing. He cannot justify continuing the use of the Enterprise as a search ship, but he cannot resign himself to losing so many dedicated good people. Troy enters Picard's office. Picard tells her the search is over and enlists Troy to begin making funeral services. He tells her to not start immediately while he informs a very important next of kin. Picard goes to Beverly's quarters with a heavy weight and great hesitation. He rings her bell and enters. Before Picard can say it, Beverly does because she can read it in Picard's face. Beverly takes the realization that Wesley has gone quite well, uh, considering she's his mother, in front of Picard, but when he leaves, the tears begin to flow. Meanwhile, in the shuttlecraft Einstein, Wesley is at the helm when Ensign Nagata joins him. Nagata speaks of her concerns that they may never get off the ship, and Wesley talks about having a positive attitude. The ship was not crushed in the subspace vortex, which it could have easily been. Riker is recovering from his severe injuries, which we were afraid he wouldn't recover from. It's possible, even at sublight speeds, to reach a habitable world, uh, even if the odds are not great. Worf tries to encourage Nurse Faraday to have courage in reaction to her telling him she is feeling downright scared. He tells her courage is resistance to fear, not the absence of it. Faraday asks if that is a Klingon saying. Then Worf explains he learned it from his human foster parents, who learned it from... A man named Clemens. Sam Clemens, also known as Mark Twain. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise holodeck, Picard is conducting the funeral ceremony in his formal dress uniform. And I do mean dress. It's a beautiful garden setting with mountains in the distance. Picard speaks of Riker's family, love of music, and devotion to others. Troy eulogizes Worf. She speaks of his bravery, which is not surprising, but she also describes his pride in his ship and the people he served with as being so strong that it was a form of love. What a chick thing to say. At least Troy acknowledges Worf would probably take exception with that wording. With a batleth! Geordi is next, who speaks of Wesley Crusher. He apologizes for not being able to say something eloquent and poetic, like Wesley deserves, but goes on to tell a short story about Wesley. He speaks of when Geordi witnessed Wesley on a catwalk in engineering, staring, at, staring com in complete joy at a disassembled frequency modulator. He was fascinated with such things, and that is how Geordi will always remember him. Elsewhere... 
Riker's father receives word of Will's death and begins his mourning. Luxana Troy receives word of all of Deanna's friends that were lost on the shuttle. She is crushed from the loss, but does not mention Will, Will Riker in particular. Dr. Pulaski receives word of the deaths from an officer aboard her new starship. She takes it badly and wants to be alone. Salak's parents, on what appears to be Vulcan, receives word of her death from a Vulcan Starfleet officer. Back on the Einstein, sensors have picked up life forms in space. Wesley and Ensign Nagata talk about the possibility of them being able to help them, but Worf points out the possibility that they will be hostile. Reluctantly, Worf gives the go-ahead to try and contact them, but orders Crusher to proceed with caution. On the Enterprise, Picard is alone at the site of the funeral services, sitting alone among so many empty chairs. He says he cannot seem to let them go when everyone else seems to have. He tells the computer to add holodeck renderings of Riker, Worf, and Wesley. He tells them how much he respects them, how much he will miss them. Finally, he says he can't mourn them because, darn it, he believes they are still alive and leaves the holodeck purposefully. Back on the Einstein, they approach the source of the life signs. It's a large, randomly formed conglomeration of ships forming some kind of alien space station. Are these what remains of other ships that came through the subspace vortex? These and more questions will be answered in the next thrill-packed issue to be continued. Indeed. Indeed. <coughs> so things are getting a little bit more interesting, I think. I, I think no it's problem. I think it's a little odd that they find that um, that hodgepodge of ships and. Worf says that there's no evidence of propulsion. When you can see very well that there's, you know, like <laughs> like a what looks like a Romulan warbird, a space shuttle from current times. Uh, I mean, you could see all these ships as part of that. So what do you mean there's no signs of propulsion? <laughs> they got engines. There's a Klingon warbird there. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, well, they're probably not moving at the moment. Right. But, yeah, with all those engines sticking out of it, you'd think they'd have some ability to maneuver. Exactly. Maybe it's not moving right now. Maybe that's what he meant. Anyways, thought that was weird. Or maybe he's assuming because they're not moving right now, it doesn't seem to be able to move. I mean, it doesn't have any propulsion. But that's an assumption. I know for a fact that it wouldn't move straight because that thing is... (laughs) (laughs) It'd probably move and rip itself apart. Exactly. So uh, we talked about the cover yeah. last issue. Uh, I just want to mention on this cover, I love it. I love the uh, the little hollow cubes with the the three missing crew members, uh, similar to how Yar right. was in in those few episodes where they they showed her hologram. Right. Pretty pretty cool, I thought. Uh, yeah. And despite the cover artist being a different person from the uh, inside issue artist. Those little gold statues look pretty close to what was in on the cover and as well as in the book. Oh, is it the same? They're the crew are in the same poses. Well, uh, I don't know. If, I'm not sure if they're in the exact same poses, but 
but they look they look like the other ones because the uh, the the holograms on the holodeck. I mean, they were moving around and, and even interacting with Picard. I didn't talk about it in the uh, narr- in the synopsis, right. but you know, they were doing a little bit of talking with, with uh, Riker. Yeah. Simulation. Yeah, you're right. But I think I just think the style of how they were depicted, maybe not their particular pose, uh, I think they look very close. No, I agree. I agree. So you didn't mention it. Yeah. The the title of this episode or this issue is actually "Morning Star." Morning being uh, not morning as in good morning, but true. I thought that was a nice little pun. Yep. Uh, right, right. But morning as in yeah. Morning the lost about of dead people. Yeah. Exactly. Boo hoo. So, do you think it was necessary for Worf to explain that the Clemens he's talking about, his first name is Sam, and then on top of that, explain uh, that that he's also known as Mark Twain? You didn't know that, did you? I don't know. I don't know that that was well, incredibly necessary, but you don't know who your audience is. I don't know. It, it didn't True. bother me. As soon as I saw Clemens, as soon as I saw Clemens, I said, "Oh, that must be a." A Mark Twain uh, quote. Yeah, it would have been funnier quote. if they, if she would have said, "Oh, I didn't know you knew Samuel Clemens," and he said, "Oh, it's a old Klingon proverb." You know, kind of how like a <laughs> how they were quoting <laughs> Shakespeare all the time in Star Trek Six, like, like a Chekhov or something. Well, no, just Star Trek Six was always Kling, uh, the Klingons were always quoting Shakespeare and said that you know you you don't oh, know right, Shakespeare right. until you. Listen to him in the native or into the original Klingon. Oh, in the original Klingon. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I like that. I I thought they were just writing that down to the lowest common denominator. I didn't think it was necessary. But I, I agree. Fine. I agree. Uh, another thing is um, another comment is. You know, no one seems to be making any kind of connection between Riker's rumored death. And how it's probably affecting Troy pretty profoundly. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know they weren't dating at this point. But they were a hot item prior to, to, to the series. And, you know, they always had a thing for oh, each yeah, other. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was always there. And, and, and Deanna doesn't say anything. And maybe she doesn't think it's appropriate. Picard doesn't say anything. I mean, not even Luxana says anything. Yeah, that's uh, a good point. I, I, I didn't sorry, think I, about uh, I didn't think about that until you mentioned it uh, when you were doing your synopsis. Right. I mean, they kind so, of they, oh, they kind of had uh, it in the last issue with you know Troy talking to Jordy about Riker disappearing, but in this issue uh, they don't ever talk about it. Right. And uh, Deanna ends up doing the eulogy for Worf. Not Riker, and I mean she wasn't hot and heavy with Riker. I mean with Worf at this point, so she knows Riker a hell of a lot better than she ever knew Worf at this point. Right, but I don't. Yeah, but it made more sense for Picard to do Rikers. No, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I think they were just going for opposites with with Troy doing Worf's because she's all. 
touchy-feely, right. and he's not. <laughs> True. And when they got together, that was kind of an interesting, uh, unexpected uh, relationship. Yeah, which they totally forget about in the next movie, or the first movie. Exactly. <laughs> no explanation of anything. Nope. Just the same way as they, I think they completely forgot about those those space, dangerous space rifts that were being created by uh, starships going too fast. No, they actually brought that back up for Voyager. And I think also they, they maybe not mentioned it in um, in First Contact, but supposedly the reason why the Enterprise E is laid out the way it is is because it has different warp drives. But they did men- they okay, did but, mention that. In well, I, I don't think they... Okay, so uh, I've saw it about ten times. I don't think they ever explained that the Enterprise E layout is to help alleviate those rifts that were that were happening because people were going at high yeah, warp. You're right. I don't it, think they ever talked it, about it's that. It's never mentioned on screen. Right. I, uh, and that may be why it looks different, but I thought that was just a progression of the Voyager design. Right. But but I think they do mention So so did so in Voyager so in Voyager when they and, and I don't remember them mentioning in Voyager either, but when they mentioned it in Voyager well, what'd they say about it? That they that they had cured it or something, or they figured out how to get around yeah, it? Yeah, that the reason why Voyager's um, uh, engines kind of move on that swivel was that that was something to do oh. with um, you know uh, preventing that dead space that 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 was happening in the next gen. Oh, it, interesting! It was, I don't it was really that. funny because my wife and I haven't watched a lot of Voyager, or we didn't up until recently, and uh, we always right. made fun of that episode of the Next Gen because you know they they go off at warp speed, they say they're going to make all these changes, and you never hear from it again. And we used to always laugh that exactly that you know you never hear from it again. And then we're sitting there watching Voyager, and they actually bringing up bring it up, and I'm like, oh, egg on our face. <laughs> well, good point. I, I don't remember that Voyager at all. So obviously they figured out a way to do it without having Dorco uh, engines that pivot. <laughs> right. <laughs> which always reminded me. Which always reminded me of Top Gun or something. Like, oh, ooh. engines. You know, something on the on the on the the vehicle actually moves when they go faster. It's like, ooh, yeah. I didn't. Ooh. I never liked that. I thought it was kind of cheesy. Yeah. And the engines are so tiny to proportion to the rest of the, the ship. Right, right. But anyways, back to this well. issue. Um, I loved the uh, post-funeral scenes where you had the little sh- scene with Riker's dad, the Loxana scene, and the uh, Pulaski scene. I, I thought, I thought. Oh, you loved all those. I did. I thought, I thought that was great because. You know, in the TV show, all these things happen, and you know that if that really happened, it would have ramifications outside of the ship. Yet, because of, you know, they can't cast that person to come in to do a one scene cameo, that you never see how something might affect somebody else on another planet. Uh, but, but here right. in this comic book, you had that luxury. You could have a whole page depicting uh, how Pulaski might take the loss of. Uh, you know some of her yeah. former crew members and things like that. I thought it was yeah. I thought it was fantastic. And 
and I, I thought it was fine. I just thought it was getting a little long. And it just smacked to me of, oh, we want a three-parter story, so we're going to put this filler in here. You mean five-parter. Uh, but I know you didn't see it as filler. <laughs> um, and it turns out it's a five-parter, so okay. <laughs> well, the Dr. Salar, uh, I think that's Dr. Salar's parents. Not, uh, I think her dad's name is Salar. Yeah. But... Uh, I, I thought oh, that I right. thought, okay, I gotcha. thought that part was was Salar. getting a little long because you don't know. Well, you mean by the time by the time they got to uh, Salar's right. parents? I mean, because we've never been introduced to yeah. Salar's no, parents. I, I thought that one was kind of random. Sure. Right. Maybe next we'll see. Yeah, and 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 quite frankly, I don't remember the episode where we were introduced to Riker's father. Oh, you don't. I don't remember that one. But obviously it happened because of what he said. I just got you back, and now you're gone again. So they they had a rift in their relationship, yeah, I guess? Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a season two episode, if I'm not mistaken. Season two? Yeah. Oh. But anyway. <sighs> Alzheimer's. I, I thought that was good. I like that part. Did you notice the interesting... Or the interesting aspect, at least that I can't explain, maybe you can, about uh, when they're at Solar's parents on Vulcan. Uh, let me jump to that page again. Page 17. Why the door knocker looks like a, an earth door? <laughs> no. Um, maybe there's a reason for it, but I don't know why. But the first panel... On that page, and the last panel on that page look <laughs> identical. They are identical. And I don't know why. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> I guess that's funny. Because <laughs> it's like the guy's walking towards the house from the shuttle. Exactly. And then on the last page, yes. he's still walking from the shuttle to the house, and he's in the same spot. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and his arm's in the same spot. <laughs> and, the, the you know, picture. he's exactly the same distance between the building and the shuttle. And the sun is in exactly the same place over the mountains? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Now, if he was turned around, walking towards the shuttle, maybe. But... <laughs> well, it, that wouldn't make sense because the panel before that, uh, Salar's mom says, please come inside. And then the next panel right, is but... him walking from the shuttle to the house again. No, you're absolutely right. It's very what a... funny. Well, well, yeah, but but that could have made sense if they said, well... We're not going to show you the boring conversation between them. Right. We're just going to get across the point that, you know, the message was delivered and, uh, you know, yeah, I, the Vulcan uh, Starfleet officers heading back yeah, to the I, ship. I get you. No, that's very funny. <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> okay, okay. Somebody, you know, budget, budgetary? I mean, what? I, I don't uh, – or mistake? I don't know. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder if there was another picture there, and for whatever reason, it didn't get approved or whatever, so they just moved that first picture back down to the bottom of the page and hope nobody <laughs> they noticed. They copied it. They just copied it. <laughs> I'll be honest, I didn't notice. I, I just, just I, When I read it, in my mind's eye, it was the guy walking back to the shuttle. Right, but, uh, right. That, that's a very good, very good catch. Yeah. That's actually all I have for this issue. You have anything else? Yeah, that's all I have. Okay, cool. 
I have mentioned all there is. But it will be interesting to see next time exactly what that... Uh, what what would you call it? A uh, double helix-shaped station? I don't yeah, know. I don't know, like a snake type. But that is a wacky thing. It's very weird. That is a wacky, wacky thing. Very strange. Well, uh... So what do you, what do you think of my theory? Uh, which was your theory? I'm sorry. My theory is that that conglomeration of ships is just a whole it's just a conglomeration of a whole other bunch of other people that came through the um through the vortex to that spot. Yeah, yeah, it could be. And didn't have anything else to do except kind of cling together because they had no idea where they were. Uh that's a good point. I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah. I can't remember. Uh, no, there's kind of there's kind of sort of a space shuttle. On there too. Yeah, it looks just like the space shuttle. Right. Okay. I didn't notice that before. Anyway, so maybe that's uh, the space shuttle of uh, I forgot his name on on Farscape. Because remember, he gets kind of sucked. Oh, in. John yeah, Crichton. Crichton's. It's John Crichton's. Right, because he got. Yeah. S- the only thing is, uh, John Crichton's shuttle looks a lot like Steve Austin's. Not as much like a uh, like a real NASA shuttle. Oh, uh, did it not look like a normal shuttle? Um, not so much because it's kind of like uh, it, it's all kind of kind of curvy, and there's no distinct wing. I mean, it kind of it, it. Yeah, it's it's a little bit more curvy and small, and anyway, it looks more like Steve Austin's shuttle. Steve kinda. Austin from. Million dollar Six million dollars. I didn't know he was an astronaut. Oh yeah. Steve Austin, astronaut. Oh. Yeah. A man barely alive. I guess I don't think I've ever seen an episode. You're too young. You're I think I did young. watch I don't think that I don't think I don't think they do repeats of that much. Oh no, they don't. They did when I was a kid. I used to watch it. Occasionally, or at least parts of it. Right. I I, I do right. remember watching, or at least watching parts of the reunion movie with him and where he marries the bionic oh. woman. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of remember that. watching that. Well, you know what would have what would be putting more uh, of those reruns on on TV. If Jim Carrey would have had his proposed six million dollar man reboot. <laughs> and what was that? Where he is the six million dollar man, and when he goes into action running, and when Steve Austin always slows down when he starts running, right, in slow motion, uh, Jim Carrey wouldn't need any tricks. He'd just like like do it <laughs> slow, and that would be the joke. Huh. It's a one joke movie. That's why they never made it. Anyway. One joke movie, but it would have been a good one. Huh. Did you ever watch the new Bionic Woman TV show? I know it's kind of off subject. Yes. Was it good? Um, it was okay. They had uh, Starbuck in yeah. there as the evil six million dollar man woman, or six six million dollar woman. So that was cool. Huh. 
So there was another bionic woman before Jamie Summers. Now, did they have a $6 million man in that series at all, or they just ignored that part? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think they went down that path. Anyway. All right. We digress. Shall we talk about uh, next-gen episodes? Yeah, so this was the very end of season four. <coughs> so uh, yeah, do you want to go through the episodes, or do you want me to? Uh, it, it doesn't. I could, sure. I mean, I could do it. I don't. So we're going to start out with, uh, with Half Life. Half a Life. Yep. Or Half a Life. Sorry. Uh, which which premiered on May sixth, nineteen ninety one, and and I, and I like this episode because this this particular episode um, really stared the whole question of uh, old age uh, and death, and you know. How, as a society, we you know sometimes treat uh, you know our our senior folks in in maybe negative ways and don't treat them as well as we should. So I, I thought this was a really good episode. So his uh, meeting and getting a relationship with Luxana makes him rethink his social uh, obligations to basically let himself get killed because he's too old. Next one is The Host, which was episode 23 from season 4. And that was uh, original air date May 11th, 1991. And in that one, let, let me just give the tagline and you can explain it. Because you, you, you know this episode better than me. But uh, Dr. Crusher falls for someone who's not at all what she expects him to be. That's it. So Crusher falls in love with a man who ends up having a symbiote in him that gets put into Riker. She continues the romance, uh, and then when the symbiote is taken out of Riker and into a woman, uh, she doesn't want to continue the relationship at all. <laughs> That's right. She's a little old-fashioned that way. So this is the obvious basis of the trills that we get to know in Deep Space Nine. Uh, it's it, it's just, it definitely sounds like they should be if they didn't call them a trill or maybe yeah so I guess they may come up with the label later I don't know all right. all right what's next the mind's eye so the mind's eye was episode twenty four of season four and that first aired on May twenty fifth nineteen ninety one and in this one Jordy is brainwashed by the Romulans to assassinate a Klingon ambassador so this was the one where. Jordy, they, they're using his implants as a, a direct gateway right. into his brain or something. Right. So they're able to not only have more of a direct channel into his brain for the evil Romulan mind uh, brainwashing techniques, but also, supposedly, because they're going in through the implants, they'll never be, no one will ever be able to trace what they did. Yeah. They, they, they reuse yeah. that same logic in Star Trek Generations when the when the the, the Duras sisters kind of do the same thing. Right. I mean, di didn't they just basically bug his um, his visor? Yeah, but I thought didn't they do something more, or is that all they did? I think that's all they did. Uh, okay. I mean, they they just tortured Jordy so that everybody thought they did something to him. Uh, or but but the whole time Soren was just trying to bug his yeah, visor. Yeah, I think you're right. All right, uh, that one. This episode's not one of my favorites. 
No, I don't remember much about it personally. If I didn't read up a little bit about it, I wouldn't have remembered. Now I think the next it didn't stick. The with next me. episode's one of my favorites, or at least an interesting one. Yes, in theory is the title. Episode twenty-five, air date June first, nineteen ninety-one. When a female crew member is infatuated with Lieutenant Commander Data, yes, Data, he decides to give romance, and a or he decides to give a romantic relationship a try. Also, the Enterprise finds itself having to maneuver through a dangerous nebula. Yes, this was an interesting one, wasn't it? Yeah, so we talked about this one actually uh, back in episode, I forgot what it was, 58 or something, uh, when we we mentioned that, you know, Data had a girlfriend. You remember talking about it? Right. Yep. Yep, we did, because there was that potential relationship between Data and uh, the kid, don't remember the kid's name, the kid's mother. Um, And what I really found interesting about this one is Data, in his interactions with everybody on the crew, uh, in like normal friendships, uh, working relationships, whatever, he seems pretty pretty human-like. Like he's really having feelings of friendship and all those kind of things. I mean, you get, I mean, he simulates that pretty well as far as projecting it outside. But when it comes to love, uh, romantic relationship and love, he's a machine. And if you talk about genuine emotion and affection, all those things you want out of a really deep relationship, loving relationship, he didn't have the equipment. And I thought that was very poignant. How how what ultimately happened to the relationship at the end of the episode? Right. Yep. No, it's it's good. It, it's yeah, like you said, it it shows to you that he he's just acting. He's just you know, as much as you love him, he's still not human, and is just going through the motions. Right. He's simulating a lot of things. Now, after he has the emotion chip put in. Um, in generations, how real would it be then? I don't know. I don't know. You could still turn it off and on whenever you wanted to. <laughs> true, true. Uh, anyway. All right. So last one. And um, last one is redemption. So episode uh, season four closer episode twenty six. First air date was June fifteenth, nineteen ninety one. Both Captain Picard and Lieutenant Worf must decide where their priorities lie as the Klingon Empire descends into civil war. So the only thing I remember about this one is that at the end of the episode, you think that Worf is going to leave Starfleet. Am I right? Right. Uh, I'm. I, that's what I think. Okay. I, I, if I remember correctly, right. Yeah, so... Uh, I don't really remember much of that episode. I can't remember why he was going to leave have something to do with his dad and Kern ah yeah okay was this the one where it brought up the the Duras brother the the boy well the well the house of Duras is definitely involved in this one um so once okay so so uh Gauron comes on the Enterprise, and once he's there, he tells Picard, the House of Duras has massed a large fleet and are preparing to move against him. 
although Duras died in disgrace, and his, his family should share in that. Hmm. Gauron says the Duras family's corruption is too widespread. Honor will soon have no meaning. Okay, so this is a big rift between the House of Duras and Gauron, I guess. And it's... Which descends into civil war, potential civil war, and uh, ultimately War feels he has to go and, and help solve it. Uh, it has nothing to do I with think. the redemption of the Moog name. The House of Moog. Ah, I don't... I thought that was... A, wasn't that a different one? Sins of the Father or something uh, like I that? Know. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so, so obviously, we're... Okay, well, anyway, I could read more of the uh, Memory Alpha not, thing, but... It's not... Let's not do that, because we're already going a little long. Yeah, we're going long. Anyway, the thing is, uh, it was a great episode, like all of them, so... Let's just end it with yeah, that. Yeah, there you go. It's not quite the season closer that season three was, but it was still good. Oh, my God. But how can you... I mean, how can you top you that one? You can't top that one. That's the ultimate. No. All right, so... Uh, that was that was such a great season closer that they used the ending minutes of that uh, season closer of season three uh, in the season closer of one of uh, Family Guy's uh, episodes. Right, where he kills Lois and it ends the show. Exactly. And that was, I know I've mentioned it before on the show, but that was sheer masterpiece. That was a sheer masterpiece. Seth McFarlane, you are the man. (laughs) All right. He is. All right. All right, so next week, uh, 69, and we will have the original series episode, or issues number 22, 23, and 24. Excellent. Excellent. Yep, we're closing out 1991 okay. uh, in the next couple issues, and then we'll jump into the um, the uh, the miniseries, the Modella miniseries, which which was the first crossover between the next gen and original series. Oh, looking cool. forward to it. Sounds good. All right, me too. All right, so well, that's it. Thanks everybody for uh, joining us for yet another episode of Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan King. <laughs> Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at star t comic book review at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.